Here we go. Let's, before we get into our Bible study, let's do a little bit of trivia. See if your minds how they're on such a nice, cloudy morning this morning. In the year 1900 in the United States, what was the most popular names given to boys and girls? William, Elizabeth, Joseph, Catherine, John, Mary, George, Danan, Wayne, or Deb? <laughs> Wayne and Deb is not right. Okay. Joseph and Elizabeth, which one? You got to go in, in those pairs. Okay. William and Elizabeth, Joseph and Catherine, I don't remember which one it is. John and Mary, that's what it was back in 1900. Here we go. Roy Rogers, Dale Evans Museum, you will find their horses stuffed. Roy's horses trigger. Which one was Dale's? Buttercup, Daisy, Scout, Tulip, or Mr. Ed? Yeah, you guys are good. You remember all this. Here we go. During the 1980s, for six consecutive years, which dog was the most popular in the United States? Hmm. The gold of the retriever? You think? I think it's the chihuahua. Yip, 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 yip. It's not. That one I can tell you. I don't remember. Cocker spaniel. Cocker spaniel. Of the following items, which was the fewest in U.S. homes in 1990? The computer, CD player, cordless phone, dishwasher. Least. The computer is not the one. Not the cordless phone. It's not the dishwasher. You have any other guesses? Uh, there you go. You got it. Boy, you're good. In 1990, what percentage of United States couples did the wife earn more than the husband? It's one of those. C, A, anybody going for D or B? B, I think, is it. Yes, it is. Okay. The D and D-Day stands for Doomsday, the, the Day, Dwight Day, Dunkirk Day, Danger Day, Defeat Them, defeat them Day. D-Day. Which one? This one I, I had wrong in my mind all along. Okay. It's not Doomsday. Oh, there's two C's. Sorry about that. The first seed, Dwight Day, after Eisenhower? Yeah, I was surprised that that's not it. Okay. It's B, and it's a military lingo of that time that just says whatever you designated a day for a specific item, they called it D-Day, or my dad would say Dat Day, because he doesn't say T-H, so it would be Dat Day. Okay, and that's what it was. I didn't realize that. What other Old Testament character was contemporary to Nehemiah and ministered in Jerusalem the same time Nehemiah did? It is B. It is Ezra in Jerusalem. Esther was back in, she could have been at the same time, but she would have been back in, the, uh, in Susa, in Sushan, as the Nehemiah says. What nation was the world's power and ruler over Jerusalem at the time that Nehemiah's story takes place? One of those, Babylon, Persia, Assyria, Greece, Rome, or Poland? Which one? B. Okay. It is B. It's C was, I have them out of order. The way it should go is Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome is in the historical order. What was Nehemiah's job while serving in the court? Tax collector, cupbearer, personal secretary, head of a personal security, historian, food taster, commander of forces. Okay. Anything else besides B? Yeah, actually, we're going to say B is the title, but remember we talked about last week, it included other things here. It included um, personal secretary, head of the personal security, and food taster. 
So all of them combined was what his job was doing. What's his famous contribution? Building the temple, developing a new farming strategy, throwing off Persian rule, building cities, walls, defeating the Samaritans, having a neighborhood night. It's going to be, he's only doing one, okay? He is doing one. He is building the walls. The temple had already been done, and then the building up of the city had been done, but they needed to stop, and then it was going in. Let's build up the walls, and let's start getting the rest of it uh, renovated and going. But his job was basically building the walls and getting that going. So we're coming to Nehemiah. Hey, let's pause for a minute. Let's do something here this morning we haven't done for a while. And let's just take, if you have, bless you, if you have any uh, major prayer requests. We're going to take a couple minutes. We'll just pray here this morning. Prayer is a good thing to do. Any special prayer requests that we can be praying for today? You got a pen or pencil? You got a piece of paper? You can write these down as other individuals. May take a minute or so and share some of those prayer items. Uh, I've already mentioned one when we pray together here as a group. Praise God for neighborhood night. That's a praise. And pray for the follow-up that we'd be able to see. Um, as I mentioned Wednesday night, I had the opportunity during that evening to present the gospel in full to two different people, uh, family units. And then since then, there's been opportunity. Yesterday in the follow-up calling, there were several opportunities to share the gospel. So pray for the follow-up there. Let's see. Anybody have other major prayer requests that we could be taking a moment that ask others to be praying for? Not to put you on the spot. Harlan? Are they back this weekend? They're on their way. Okay. There was a group that had gone out, and it was. I know that the one is Andrea and Julie went together. Uh, Stacy was on a trip as well. So let's pray as they travel back from their missions trip, their medical missions trip, as they wrap, have wrapped that up or wrapping it up and on their way back. Other items, other individuals we should be praying for. Jay? She got home already? Okay. 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 Just jet lagged, eh? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. Yes, sir? Mm-hmm. And that was in a 24-hour period? Yeah, if you couldn't hear because, of the, because we're not piping sound. Um, when Marilyn had that oblation surgery prior to that, the test was 3,000 skip beats in a 24-hour period. Post-oblation, 30. So tremendous change. So let's praise God that she's doing much better. That means, okay, she, her stamina and everything is going much better. So that's great. That's, a, that's superb. Other items? Other individuals we should be praying for? Yes, ma'am. Praise God, their grand- grandbaby. Grandbaby. Yeah. If you want to see pictures, the, right here. She's got them. Right here. Okay? Not that they're proud about the grandbaby, but there's pictures. And in the middle of the picture is a Hershey bar. Okay, so... Yeah, yeah, congratulations. Other items, other items to just pray about. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. Okay, a gal named Maria that had an opportunity to talk to and spiritual growth. You think she's saved, but let's pray for this gal by the name of Maria. Yes, ma'am. Good. Sustained minimal damage, okay. but a lot of their neighbors lost their okay. So let's, okay. let's pray for the people down in Florida. That's good to remind because several of us have relatives down there. So let's pray for the follow-up for Florida, Texas. Okay, let's pray for those individuals. Any other prayer items? Yes, sir. Bob? Uh, two months ago I had neck surgery. Yes. In the last few weeks I've been having a 
Okay. Okay. Bob had carotid artery surgery, and it developed complications right after that. But now you're having some issues. They're going to check tomorrow and see if they have to go in and recorrect. So let's pray for Bob with that possibility of surgery that things would heal. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Sure. Okay. Do you have a, a name? Yes, her name is um, Esther. His name is Jim. Jim and Esther, an elderly couple. He's going through cancer, discouraged. She doesn't know if they're saved. So pray for them. We have several people that are dealing with cancers. So you were just mentioning your father may have to have knee replacement surgery. Uh, A lot of different people with surgery. So let's take a moment. Let's pray for some of these people, okay? Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather. And too often we just gather quickly and we forget about the aspect of prayer. and We kind of just shove it in here. And so we want to take these few minutes and we want to pray for some of these individuals. We pray that you would bless in some of these cases talking to to somebody, Maria, about spiritual things. We pray that she, if she's not saved, will be drawn to Christ. We pray for this couple just mentioned who are uh, elderly, who are dealing with cancer, discouraged. Lord, we all have and know of some individuals in similar type situations. We pray especially for this couple that you would provide encouragement, help Irene to have wisdom to be able to talk with them. We pray as well and thank you for the good trip that Stacy had. We pray for uh, Andrea and Julia as they're en route back or wrapping up their medical trip. We pray that the fruit that they helped to put out would bear more fruit in the days ahead, that these seeds would grow. We thank you that Maryland's doing much better and that the oblation has has shown some success. We thank you as well for Neighborhood Night and for the privilege, the opportunity to be able to share your word last week, yesterday, and we pray that that would happen in the days ahead. And if anybody comes this day uh, to join us, we pray that you give us wisdom, how to respond, how to be gracious, how to go out of our, our normal comfort zone and welcome them so as to lay out the opportunity to share the gospel. We pray, too, that you would give wisdom in dealing with uh, work situations that some are facing. Some are facing other families have other uh, tough issues. And, Father, there was other requests mentioned. Help us to remember those that we've written down. And in the days ahead, give us wisdom to be able to be people of prayer, people that would come before you. And we come right before you this moment, and we ask that you would help us to learn your word, to be challenged by it, and to be an encouragement this day to one another, even in our fellowship. Give wisdom, especially as we present the word this morning. I pray that as a, as a group together that what gospel presentation we make along with other presentation that you would just please help if anybody comes this morning who's not saved that they would respond. I pray as we deal with this really tough topic uh, today, tonight, that you would give us wisdom as a church body to understand and give maturity in digesting this really, really difficult area of personal liberties and to help that to be one that would unify us, not divide, divide us. We pray that you would bless the seniors that are going on this trip tomorrow, that they would have safety and they would have a profitable time and an enjoyable time in the vehicle for an extra lengthy uh, period of ride. Give us great wisdom as parents and even as grandparents. We thank you even for grandbabies born this week and we ask that you would just continue to bless in the growth of families. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Make it to be really, really clear to us and personal and challenging. 
Amen. Let's do Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's pick up with the story and we'll pick up a little bit of what we did last week that I just kind of glossed over, but I want to pause and do a little bit more study on some, some of the chapter 1 again in chapter 2. Um, if we set the scene, and then we'll read the passage a little bit. We've got Nehemiah, the background of his book, so if you pick it up and you're going to read it, here's what you got. Nehemiah is this fellow, his name means Jehovah Comforts, which is an encouraging thought as we go through. His country of origin, he is Jewish by nationality by birth. He is living in the area of Persia, and he's living in the capital city, in fact, and as you already mentioned that, what he has, he's risen in ranks as a Jew who is, whose family or himself had been in the dispersion years before. He is there, he's raised in rank and proved himself to be an able, qualified individual, and he has risen to be in, this, in the king's court. And he's very close to the king, as that we mentioned, the cupbearer. He would be a personal confidant to some degree, one that they would trust you know, implicitly because he's in charge of security, so you'd have to trust him. And so his legacy is that of he going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls. And they do it in a record time. They do it in 52 days. Few things go up very quickly. I remember a few years ago, the McDonald's over here by the giant going down this way, there was a prefab McDonald's. And I, you've seen some of those prefab things. They go up in a matter of what? Yeah, just hours, hours. My parents did one prefab home in uh, central Minnesota one time. And so it was in one day. They had the basement all laid. They come in one day. They put their entire first floor of their house all together. And it was just bringing this part, this part, this part, put it together. And the amazing part was that house was sealed tighter than any other house they'd ever had as far as climate control. But uh, you can do prefab stuff now. He doesn't have prefab. They're doing a lot of their work by hand. So the amazing part is they're building that wall in 52 days. And it's an amazing, incredible time. Now, the time period he's living in, okay, he's, his country, his um, his history has been the last few decades what the Jews have experienced. They were in their land. They were doing well. They had the multiple kings. But then all of a sudden Babylon comes in and attacks the southern kingdom. That's all that's left. Takes the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin plus the remnants of the other tribes and they attack 606. They attack in 597. They come again in 586. And in 586 they wipe out the city. The city is, is going to lie dormant for a number of years. Based on 606 when the first attack and remnants were taken away. Uh, then there's a 70-year gap that the, Jew, that the Jews are out of the land, much of their leadership, and they come back and uh, they start to return in 536, just like Jeremiah says, 70 years that many of them are out of the land. They go back and they start rebuilding. Now that's the key dates. They start going back and rebuilding 536. They rebuild the temple first uh, because that's their their identity. And they build it, but it's not at all like it used to be. And they cry when they, the old men cry when they see it done because not the idea that it's there, thank God, but the idea that it's not like it used to be and it's our fault. We had disobeyed the Lord. And so groups of people are going back periodically from the uh, dispersion. They get back and they go in. Some build the temple. Some go back and try to build the city up. But what happens as more of the pilgrims show up in the region, then the people who were there, the enemies, the ancient enemies, the descendants of the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Philistines, who are, they're kind of off the scene, but their descendants are there called by other names. They are jealous that Jerusalem is trying to get rebuilt because they remember in their most recent history, they remember that Jerusalem used to be the powerhouse 
and had dominated them. They don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. They don't want to see the Jews come back into power because their small little, um, I'm going to use the word city-states, but it's more like county-states, county kingdoms. And if Jerusalem kind of rises to the top, then they aren't going to have their power anymore. So they want to stop the Jews who are starting to come back. They don't want this influx of foreigners in their territory, even though they were the original peoples. And so they're going to stop it. And what happens is about a dozen years before Nehemiah shows on the scene, the, uh, the enemies in those little county states, they got the emperor, Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah works for, they got him to pass a decree that said no more building in Jerusalem. In fact, it even says tear down some of your building. Because we were notified and we bent back and checked the records that you are a rebellious people. That you Jews, you don't, you don't submit very, very frequently. So we don't want you to start building up. And until I so order, and that's an important phrase in Nehemiah, in Ezra. And by the way, just to put this in the, um, there is a phrase that is used in history. It is called the laws of the Medes and Persians. Anybody ever hear that term? What's that mean? It makes them kind of unique historically. The law of the Medes and Persians. Once it's a law, you can't undo the law. You can't repeal Obamacare, okay? Whatever that Persian law is, you can't repeal it because that's the discussion, right? Today in politics, repealing something, they don't repeal. Now, you could pass another law that might alter it, which like in the case of Esther, they did. Um, But once you pass something, it is almost in granite. That's really critical to understand what Nehemiah is doing. When Nehemiah is going to stand before the king and say, let me go back and rebuild, he's basically asking the king to rescind a law which they don't do. This is totally contrary to their legal system. And so it's, it, that plays into it that we, sometimes we forget that that's how that operated in that political setting. So a dozen years before, they were told you can't build anymore, no more building. And by the way, that's why that Ezra 4 verse 12 statement, until I so order, it was left open by the, by the emperor with a possibility, but he had to give his personal approval. And so Nehemiah gets a report from his brother that it's a terrible condition. And immediately he's moved. To the point we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 that he is so moved in verse 4. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down, I wept, I mourned, for days I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He prays. His prayer was, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Notice he is understanding conditional covenant here. A conditional agreement that they had with God. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will... What did the Old Testament have? I will punish you. They were punished. So he understands that. Let your ear now, Lord, be attentive, even your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which you commanded by the servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there there were against uh, though 
Though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the earth, I will gather them from thence and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So I'm going to regather you in Jerusalem. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, and he says it again, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, but this time he adds another phrase, and to the prayer of who? Thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's thy servant praying for mercy in the sight of? Who's this man? Nehemiah praying that he would have mercy when he approaches the king. Okay, for I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pause. Now, we ran through this area last week kind of, kind of quickly, and so uh, we did more of the background. I want to just uh, remind you. Now, he started this prayer and this information, Chislu, December. And so he hears about it. We start reading in chapter 2, verse 1, that in the month of Nisan, which is going to be four months later or several months later, we're talking March or so, and so he's in prayer during this time period. We mentioned this last week. His prayer included praise, that is, he's got part of worship. You are great, you are terrible, or awesome. There's a confession. There is no excuse. There is no blaming others. In fact, even though he hadn't been a personal participant, as we understand, in some of their past idolatry, he is as, an, as part of the nation saying, we need your forgiveness. And so his confession, and clearly he makes, and this is an important thing, he is clearly stating our bad condition is not somebody else's fault. And this is what confession is. Confession is not finding excuse. It is taking ownership. Too often we want to excuse. But in Nehemiah's case, he's saying, okay, we have problems because we have done wrong. And he includes himself saying, there's times that I haven't disobeyed. He makes it very clear. Sin is explicit disobedient to God's commands. And he calls it that, that he has to confess. He doesn't attack the others and say it's all their fault. He includes himself in this corporate prayer. And there's no sign of personal arrogance. He's totally identifying himself and praying in this sense, God bless our nation. Our nation has done corruptly. And he's taking ownership saying, we have. We have disobeyed your word. And it's not somebody else's fault that we got in this situation. Something else that strikes me. That is prayer, not only included the praise and the confession, but also he is quoting God's promises. In the midst of this, he is saying, this is what Moses wrote. Now why would you and your praying go to God and quote God's word? Is it because God is forgetful? We were joking about this before. Some of us were saying how we forget sometimes. We do things absentmindedly. Now, none of you would ever do this. But absentmindedly, I have taken juice that's supposed to be in the fridge, and after I poured the cup, stick it back in a cupboard where it doesn't belong, or milk or something else. And then I go back later and go, who in the world did that? How could they have done that? And then Tony walks by and says, Dad, you did it a while ago. And I don't even remember doing it. Now, I would do that, but probably none of you would ever have that tendency, right? So we go to God and we say to God, God, you're kind of like me, you're absent-minded, so I'm going to remember what you promised. Is that why we quote Scripture to God? Why would you do it then? Why would you at times go to prayer and say, God, here's what you said? What's your reasoning behind that? What's that? Whose remembrance? His? Tower. <laughs> is prayer always for God's benefit? No. no. Who who benefits by it more? We do by the utterance of dependence. It reminds us what the dependence is. Why else might you quote God's word to Him? Okay, and you're bringing up the aspect of here's what you promised, Lord. 
Not that I don't trust you, but here's, I'm, I'm claiming your promise. Okay, did your kids ever do this? Dad, you promised. Mom, you promised. Okay, and they're claiming your promise. Okay, and so when we go to God, there's, there's, and it, it happened frequently that they would pray and they would quote the scripture in a positive sense. He has specific petitions. In the petitions that he prays, he says, be attentive, and I've included that second time when he says it. Be attentive to the prayer of your servant, which I understand is him, and to the prayer of thy servants, which includes other people. Okay, which I think is interesting. Okay, he acknowledges in his prayer, he's saying, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Again, God knows that. Part of that acknowledgement is for our benefit to say, I'm reminding myself, Lord, I need you so badly. And so he's acknowledging that. He's pleading for God's attentiveness to his prayer, not because God's distracted, not because God is on his cell phone and so we're trying to get his ear. It's just, Lord, I really need you. Please listen to me. I'm not worthy of you listening. And he's aware in this sense of others praying. The prayer of thy servants. Does it mean, and I don't know, you don't either, does it mean he's been having prayer times with others? When he says, in the prayer of thy servants. It could be. We know of his brother. And, and we know, does the scriptures advocate praying together as a group? Yeah, we know that. Or is he doing a generic reference saying to the many other Jews who are godly, they obviously are praying. We don't know what the answer is. But he's, at, but he's aware of and advocating the idea others are praying the same thing. He says, prosper thy servant. And we know he's talking about himself, but he is obviously willing to help. That is a critical factor here and a lesson to remind ourselves, being willing. He's praying specifically for something he has in mind. So he's not just, not just praying, he's planning. He's saying, Lord, I've got this. You've got to prosper. Something that I'm planning. Something that I'm doing. He knew his efforts would be ineffective without God's blessings. I'm going to add to this. He's going to say in the next phrase, which comes up, he's going to say, grant mercy in the sight of this man. Does Nehemiah have sway with Artaxerxes? Yeah. He does. And yet he doesn't rely upon his personal relationship and skill to convince the king. And that alone. When he's, when he's making his plans, he is saying, God, I need your help even as I present this to my boss. I, I, and he's, he's got influence. Folk, he's in a position because he's an influential guy. He knows how to conduct himself. He is politically um, savvy, obviously, to get where he's at, and yet he isn't relying upon those skills and that skill set. He is saying, okay, I need your help, especially, I'm going to be talking to him about undoing something he's done, which is big-time politics at those days, and so I need your help. I can't rely upon myself. I don't know about you. This is my weak, one of my many weaknesses, is when I get to doing normal, routine things, I know how to do the routine things so well that I often don't pray about them. Now, I don't know if anybody else does that. But I can go through the normalcy of life and usually the things that I pray about aren't necessarily the things that I most desperately need God's help. It's where I think it's a crisis is where I pray. And not the normal routine, but the normal routine is what we need. 
as well as the crises. And so he comes before God and he's praying this way. And so there's obvious things. Okay, he's concerned. We mentioned this last week. He's concerned about the needs of the others, even though he's miles away. And, and we made allusion and we made illustration application saying we have kinsmen in our country who are suffering because of the storms. And so being concerned about the needs of others. His praying became a priority. I know that you know that. He fasted. Okay, during this period. That's an obvious indication that this project and what he was planning was a big focus for his prayer. We mentioned that he prayed a long time. We already mentioned there's two different months, those four, four months, and the text seems to imply that he's doing it. And obviously he's busy, but he finds time to pray, and that's part of the fasting. You give up your normal routine so you can be praying. So one of the lessons that we ra- were wrapping up last week, we said that the difference between, the, well, the people who make a difference are individuals from our perspective. The people who make a difference in a church, in a workplace, for leading souls to Christ are people who pray. Raising godly kids, not just good kids, godly kids. It's this. It's people who are praying. People who are dedicated and devoted to making prayer a priority. Praying specifically, not just the generics. Being consistent in their prayer life. And even praying with other individuals and taking that opportunity. So you and I say, okay, I want to make a difference. I want my kids to be impacted. My grandkids to be impacted. I want to affect the workplace around me. Pray. Make prayer a part of your life. Not just, okay, let's stick it in there on a Wednesday or when we pray as a corporate body, uh, you know, on Sunday mornings, you get involved with praying. Get your prayer book, get your prayer list, mark it down, keep up with it and praying. Something else, okay, that we want to just mention. Here's a positive. What good, I'm going to ask you, what good can come from praying? What good comes? Besides answers to prayer, what good comes from praying? Fellowship, okay. Anything else? Do you have personal benefits when you pray? Have you ever noticed? Yeah, how? What? What kind of things might happen? What? Peace. You might have a greater peace than before when you pray. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. Anything else? Nothing? Courage. Okay, courage. Yeah. Irene? Comfort. Okay. Okay, let's, let's lay out this situation. Um, there's a crisis that took place. Family crisis, something going on. And you determine, I'm going to pray about it for a day before I do something. What could be the benefit of praying for a day? Time to think about it. Time to meditate on it. I don't know about you, okay? I want to get things done yesterday. And if I, when I'm rash, usually my best, wisest decisions are not made when I'm rash. She's not saying anything. Okay. Yeah. Just laughing at me. Okay. That's just as bad. It helps to avoid the impulse of the hasty. Okay. The, it helps us to learn to wait because sometimes, does God have something better if we just waited? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's help, it helps to clarify our thoughts. I don't know about you, but praying helps me to pause. And as I'm pausing, there are times as I make it a matter of prayer, my thoughts become clear. And sometimes, um, we were just talking about a situation with somebody that they, in a period of when they were waiting and they were praying about something, all of a sudden their mind went a totally different direction. And other things, other people came to mind that they wouldn't have considered. And that ended up being the best plan 
how their mind was led in that direction. And I think God often does that. Quiets our hearts. So there's many, 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 many benefits to praying, making it a part of your practice of your regular life. Let's do this. Nehemiah is going to go before his boss. Now this is, this is where most of us have to live, is dealing with authorities. How do we deal with authorities, especially authorities we don't agree with? Or who have made a plan that is contrary to what we think is wise or good or best according to Scripture. How do you deal with somebody who, by the way, is an egotist, who is, as a whole, these guys, let's put them, you know, some of you might feel you have a boss like this. The kings of those days not only knew that they were an authority, but what did they think about themselves? That they were not just great, they were gods, okay? So they are the, uh, they are the ultimate egomaniacs, okay, for the most part. And they would surround themselves with people who tell them, okay? okay? And by the way, when they wrote history books, okay, when they wrote history books, what part of history would they leave out? And this is, it occurs all the time. All the bad things that happen, all their failures are left out. What do you put in? Because you're paying, by the way, James, you're my historian. I'm paying you. What about my history are you putting in? You are going to put in my very best sermons, okay? My best decisions. You are not going to put those clunkers that everybody fell asleep in. You're never going to mention those. So I'm never going to talk about your shortest sermons? You're never going to talk about my short sermons. <laughs> are there such a thing? <laughs> Oops. I don't think so either. Okay, so if I'm paying this dude to write my history, he, he's going to write a glory story. And that's a good way of putting it. Okay, and so the way, by the way, when we study these guys' history, where do we find out about their failures? From other countries' writings. Okay, so that, that's very typical. That's, by the way, that is what makes the gospel so unique in historical writings, Right? Okay, because what did the gospel writers write? Everything. Did they include their own, their own warts and, and blemishes? Yeah, big time, big time. And so here you've got, here you've got Nehemiah is going to go before his boss. And so he's living the culture where you are definitely, definitely promoting the boss and you're going to come in and you don't counter anything that boss says. Oh, and by the way, there's something that's added here that puts a little bit added pressure. It says, it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, chapter 2, verse 1, that wine was before the king. Okay, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never before been uh, sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is your countenance sad? You're not sick. This is nothing else but sorrow of your heart. I, and what, what is Nehemiah's response? Not just afraid. What does he say? I was very sore afraid. Okay, what does he want you, the reader, and me to understand? Yeah, he's terrified. That's the best word to put. I was terrified. Okay, then he goes on, and he said before the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? Then he makes some comments, and he goes and he talks about the king. Now, jump down a little bit, and there is somebody else. Where am I going to see this? My mind is missing it. It is somebody sitting with the king. Where do you have it? Yeah, yeah, there it is. And it's in parentheses. It says, and the king said unto me, and he adds, the queen also sitting by me. What added pressure does that put on Nehemiah? What's that? They're both there. Okay, that adds to it because now there's two in authority. And not only, is, not only is he trying to persuade one, but he's got to persuade the two. 
And what must he never ever do to the king in front of the queen? It cannot make him look bad in front of his queen. Okay? He's got to make his ego, he's got to stroke both these people. Okay, now you may never find yourself in one of these situations, but here's Nehemiah in that spot. So he comes before his boss and bossette, okay, and uh, we, know these, we know this story, okay, he's coming before them, there's some, there's some banquet or meal, whether it's normal or a big banquet, we don't know, okay, uh, serving the queen, king, and the king asks of his sad countenance, now again, if you weren't here last week, we mentioned it, why is the king so concerned that Nehemiah looks sad? Because they're really good friends. That's a possibility that they've developed a friendship. And so he's concerned naturally. Probably there's better reasons. Bigger reasons. What's that? Okay, if he's testing food, why would the king be concerned how he's conducting himself? Yeah, because if he's acting weird, what could that, what, what, what thought would go through the king? If you're the king, what thought's going through your mind if this guy is... Okay, let's rephrase this. Let, let's, go back, let's go back to when you're, you're, you're doing it, you're, it's coming up, or you did it in the past. Your kid is acting weird. They come in and they're, they're he, him hawing around, they're being indirect, and they're fidgety. And he, he, <laughs> I didn't even get it out. And you're saying the kids were guilty of something. Okay. Did, did your kids have that? You looked at them and said, okay, what's up? Okay, you, or you didn't, you didn't say it that way, but you just knew something's not right because you're, they're not right. Okay, they're just acting abnormal. So the king's thinking, and if he's the food taster, and if there's an assassination plot going, he could be fidgety for that reason. There's multiple reasons. Okay, but Nehemiah and the king is concerned, and the concern the king expresses, and by the way, I'm going to take you back into Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia did have rules that we understand in the courts that you could not be sad-faced before the emperor. It is in some of their codes. So it was, a, it was in your job description. You have to smile at work. That would be a tough time for some of you, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be? Yeah, there you go. Put on the happy face. You got to be Hershey Park happy when you go to work. Okay, that would be a real stress factor for some of us. Yes, for some of you, that you'd be, man, in the middle of all the pressures, and I've got to be happy. And so, and all of a sudden the king says, why aren't you happy? Okay. And so he's got that, and all that pressure, and he's terrified. It's more than just a nervousness. He makes it, I was so afraid. And we've already mentioned the possibilities of this is, you know, Nehemiah, and, and on top of it, Nehemiah wants to ask permission to the king that's basically rescinding a law that the king has passed 12 years ago. This is, this is going to make the king look like he made a, hmm, okay, I'm telling my boss you did something wrong, but how do I tell him that and make it seem like he didn't? This is diplomacy at its peak, okay, where he's able to do that. So he's, he's uh, got a lot of this pressure, and, so he, and he's got to respond. The king says, why are you sad? He's so afraid. He's got to give an answer. He can't just say, oh, nothing. Or, or I would say, if Deb says, why, why are you, you know, out of sorts? I would just say, I'm fine. Okay, and Nehemiah can't say that. He can't get away with that because we're his position. And so he's got to respond, and he responds. His response is amazing, is how he does this. It's very, very insightful, okay? He responds with respect, 
Okay, he's very respectful to the king, which he should be. Whether he likes the guy or not, whether the guy is deserving as a person, he must be respectful to the position. Yeah, yeah, the authority is still there. I mean, do you guys ever have that? Have you ever run into somebody at work that the person does not deserve respect, but the position that they hold deserves respect? Have there ever been politicians that you say they don't deserve personal respect, but their position does. Okay, so he's got to do this, and he, so he's respectful. And the way he says it is not, don't, don't you and I respond by saying, okay, I'm going to use this with my employer. Okay, you go to the boss and say, oh, boss, live forever. You're going to get fired, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, so he's, but, he, but in that time, in that era, this was appropriate. This was respectful speech. And so it's, let the king live forever. If it please the king, if I have found favor, who is he saying is in charge? The king. He's making it very clear. You are in charge. I am subordinate to you. And he's making it very, very evident that he is going to be respectful. And so he uses terminology that is appropriate with that person to show that respect. He is tactful. Extremely tactful in what he says. And and I know some people brag and boast and find it the most commendable character to say whatever is on their mind. Some of us can't afford that. Okay, because often what is on our mind is not the best thing to say, right? And so tactfulness and graciousness is really, really important. His tactfulness. Did you notice in the beginning of what he says, he makes a comment, he says, Oh, king, my countenance is sad because when the place, the place of my father's sepulchers lies in waste, why shouldn't I be sad? He doesn't mention the name of Jerusalem. He leaves it out. Okay? Because Jerusalem is, the king knows Jerusalem is what? It's a rebellious city. So he tactfully, now he's going to bring it up after a bit. And he invokes something that is very Middle Eastern. He invokes ancestral burial sites. That is very Mideastern. Okay, in the world, in ancient world. So he's using tactful things that would, that would apply and appeal to the, the king, and he is not going to speak grievously by saying, O king, live forever, but you were an idiot 12 years ago. Okay? Now he may think that, but he's not going to say that. And so in tactfulness, he just says, you know, here's what's happened, and he doesn't mention that previous law at all. He's very honest. Now, this goes right with tactfulness. In he's asked what's going on, despite his fear and apprehensions, he doesn't lie. He doesn't retreat in fear. He doesn't come up with some cockamamie story that kind of covers it up. He's going to be honest, yet tactful, yet respectful. And I think this is, this is a quality that you and I need to be very, very uh, uh, cognizant of, is that honesty in dealing with issues tactfully, respectfully, but then dealing with in an honest fashion. He's bold. That's obvious. He states his concerns. He talks about it. And in the midst of this conversation... He goes on, and by the way, now follow the, the conversation. He makes the comments. He says, you know, I'm sad. Why shouldn't I be sad? The gates have been burned in my, in my ancestral home. My, my, my grandparents, their grave has been disturbed. Well, that would bother most of us if we heard gravestones were turned over, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that's what he's doing, okay? And then the king says unto me, and this was interesting, the king knows what he's doing. 
Okay? Because look at verse 4. What is the king's response? What are you asking? Yeah, the king knows he's asking. Okay, your kids walk in and they say to you, Oh, most blessed mother, you who make the best food in the entire world. What'd you do or what'd you, yeah, you know, how bad was the crash? <laughs> okay, you know, how, you know how, how big was the flood? Okay, you immediately go to they want something or they're confessing something. Okay, the king is going to do that same thing. It's human nature. He says, what do you ask? And immediately he says, time out, I'm going to have a prayer meeting. Right? Is that what the verse says? Yes or no? It doesn't mean he's going to go away and say, I can't talk any further. I have to go and get, to, get together with the group. He can't do that, but he prays. Is the, do you have, you've done this, haven't you? Haven't you had some of your most fervent prayer meetings in 10 seconds? In the middle of a conversation, you're going, oh, Lord, please help me. And you really mean it. This is your most fervent prayer of the day. Oh, God, give me wisdom and how to respond. Oh, God, help me not to kill this child. Yeah, help me to control myself. Okay. I know none of you have ever prayed that. It's just me. Okay. So he prays and he says to the God of heaven, and he prays and, and he, he goes to him and uh, he asks, and I think this is what he's doing. And I think, by the way, I think this is one of the most fabulous prayers we can pray. Help me with what I say. Okay? Because that's the gist of this. Help me to say the right thing. I think I don't pray that often enough. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think that prayer should be a prayer that a lot of us pray a whole lot more, is help me to watch what I say and how I say it. And so he says, that he goes to the king, and he starts, now he starts giving enough of their needs. And he's going to, here's his, his comments. I said, if it please the king, and if thy servant had found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's sepulcher, that I may build it. He has yet to say the exact name of the city. But he's giving, he's narrowing it down. The king said to the queen saying, by, how long will your journey be? When will you return? Okay, so he's got the king listening. King's asking questions. And we, we know this. He's, he's obviously at this point, he's made the decision. He's made the plans that I want to go and get involved. The emperor asks, okay, okay, um, you know, what are you asking? And he, the king responds, says, how long are you going to be gone? For, for Nehemiah's response to say, I will be gone and I set a time. That tells you and me that he's thought this through. For four months, he's been thinking through. He's been thinking through how long would I be gone. Um, what in, and not only how long he's been gone, but what else has he thought through? How do you know that? How do you know that? You said all that he needs. Because in verse seven. The next verses, absolutely. Where did you start, Joyce? Verse 7, Moreover, I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river that I may convey me, that they may convey me over to Judah. And a letter unto who? Asaph, the what? You know, the lumberman, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which pertain to the house, for the wall of the city, for the house that I enter into. The king granted me. What does that tell you about Nehemiah? What has he been doing for four months while he's been praying? He's been praying. In his planning, what has he done? He's got all the logistics worked out. He not only knows how long it'll be, he also knows what he needs, and he knows who he needs. He's done his proverbial homework. 
He's got his data. He hasn't been rash, but he's been all of a sudden being, being able to give all this. And by the way, <laughs> this is the ironic part. He not only gets permission from the king to go and rebuild, but who does he get to pay for some of this? The king. Okay, he gets the king. Okay, that's, the, that's a new building program. Go to D.C. and have them build our church. Okay, um, that, that's not what we're advocating out of the text. But what he's doing, those who make a difference, I think is, this is important. They recognize and respect the authorities over them. Okay, those who make a difference, do not usurp or ignore proper channels to get things done. He is going in the proper way. He's not overriding. He's not underwriting. He's not keeping the king ignorant, but he's going about. There's a story that comes out of Apollo 16. One of the men on there was asked uh, when about, they had some problems there. And uh, during, during part of the course, they were asking General Duke, they said, hey, listen, while you were up there, didn't you have freedoms? Because he was making comments as NASA told us this, the, the center told us this, we did this, we did this. And they said, yeah, but where, where are you up there? You're, you know, you're miles and miles away from NASA, didn't you have any authority to do what you wanted? Couldn't you make decisions? And his comment was a, was a fascinating comment. He says, well, sure we could if we didn't want to get home. Okay. His observation was there was channels. And in this, in this complicated thing of a space mission, you, we got to work within this system. And so here's Nehemiah working with this assistant, with this system. He's asking for the passports, the letters. Um, and by the way, the letters are important because there's been a decree. The last those people back in Jerusalem and in that region, the last they know, they've seen a document that said don't build. He's got to have a document in hand that says you can build. He's got to have this. So he's asking for the proper paperwork, which is really good. And uh, we've made these comments already that he knows all the details. So here's what we've got. A man who takes time to think. Okay? That he's not rash, not impulsive. He makes the effort to think through taking that time to do it. He takes the long look. He counts the cost. He takes advantage of the time. He examines specific details. Do you have any in your mind, do you have any New Testament stories that equate to this idea of thinking through and planning ahead? Did Jesus ever advocate this via any parables? Yes, no? Counting the cost of what? Building a tower or going to war. Okay, big involvement. Both those parables, he advocates that same type of thing that you and I think through. So the king agrees to his proposals. I think there's a couple of reasons that sometimes we underestimate. Why does the king agree to this? Who Nehemiah was? His obviously, he has been the type of person, the way he has worked and his relationship that the king respects and responds to. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, I mean, some of you have been in charge of people. Truthfully, have there been some underlings that you would have said yes and others to the same thing you would have said no because of the reliability of that person? The dependability, yeah, what, what they acted before. Okay, in that regard. And so Nehemiah showed himself to be one of integrity, trustworthy. He says he's going to return in X amount of time. I believe him. Why? What's that based upon? He's been honest before, been reliable. But there's also the way that he asked. Isn't this true? That sometimes it's not just who we are, but the way we ask for things. 
how that works. And so he's respectful, that tactful, going through the channels, things of that sort. And, I, and it's obvious, he makes it very clear. There's a third reason, and we don't want to underestimate and put him in the order of importance. But he makes, the, makes it clear in the end of verse 8, the, God, the king granted me according to the good hand of my God that this is the hand of the Lord, that God was involved and the God he worshipped. And so the king even sends an escort. So Nehemiah travels, he gets to the city, and when he gets there, we'll pick up next week, he gets there and he doesn't get involved right away. He spends three days checking things out. Let's make some observations. Those who make a difference. Here we go. They're willing to get involved in meeting needs. That, that's a truism. They are patiently waiting on God's timing, God's, God's timetable. Okay, they aren't impulsive, rash in the decisions that we make. We've got to be careful. They pray repeatedly and spontaneously. Okay? So they're prayer-focused individuals. They rearrange their life schedules to pray. That idea of fasting. I think that's a truism as well. They have a sense of mission. They recognize a need and that they have the ability to meet the needs. So I'm going to put myself out there to say, I can do this. God, guide, and direct is this what you want me to do. They seek to find solutions, not problems. To me, this is just, this is an absolute big thing of, of in life, at our house, at our workplace. It's finding not just problems that things are broken, but let's find the solution to it. It is easy to be the person who finds things not done. Does that make sense? People look around and say, oh, that didn't get done. That didn't get done. Oh, look at there's trash on the ground. Look not just that there's trash on the ground, but pick it up. Yeah, be the person to pick it up. And, and uh, Yeah. It just, it, it just, it, it just, it's, it's contrary to the way I think. So, and that's not that I never do this, but it's so easy to find, well, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, you know, especially in our home. In our home, it's like when the kids are growing up, come on, guys. Yeah, the, the laundry wasn't done. Well, what does that tell you? If the stuff was in the washer, instead of just saying, oh, it never got put in the dryer, why didn't you? Go and take some ownership and put it in the dryer. It's a life principle of doing something. Making a solution, not just pointing out the problems. You know, uh, it, it happens in every facet of life. And I know that there's sometimes we can't correct the big thing, but you know, just learning to say, not just see, oh, hey, the hymn books are out of place. Man, they should straighten up the hymn books. Something so simple when your kids say that, say, well, why don't we straighten them up? Let's be the solution, not the fault finder. Because quite frankly, if there's an abundance in my life, it's fault finding as opposed to solution finding. And I don't think I'm the only one that does that, that tendency. So it's something to work at. Being respectful to authority. Okay? Even if the authority isn't a godly person, still being respectful. I think that's an important truth. Speaking with tact and boldness. Being honest in our speech. Even if we're afraid of something and some answer. But still speaking the truth. Okay? Planning and preparing thoroughly. Getting all the facts. Taking the time to get the facts. How important is that in making any type of life decision uh, before we leap? So um, we'll pick up next week from there, okay? Uh, I'll give you with our story. Well, let me back up. I'll close with this story. Talking about all the facts. There's this guy in California. You can wrap up while I'm doing this. There's this guy in California that he moved into this apartment and he saw that they had cockroaches. 
And so he's going to, you know, get rid of the cockroaches his first day and he doesn't want his stuff. So he went out and bought a box of this stuff, you know, these bombs. And so he put the bomb in, lit the thing up, you know, and then walked out and said stay out of the apartment for a while. And, uh, you know, he's at the store and all of a sudden he sees fire trucks going by and gets back to his place and the fire trucks are at his place. The apartment exploded. What had happened is when he didn't read the directions, he didn't get all the facts. I mean, is it a male thing not to read directions? So all he read was the part that says, you know, open the box and the bomb. Well, he opened not just one of them, but all 24. And so he opened them up, and then when the, the fumes got to the pilot light, it boomed the entire apartment. Okay, and it wasn't something that was that could have been avoided. It was not reading directions, not getting all the facts, and he created a problem not just for himself. It's a true story, not just for himself, but for his neighbors and for everybody else. And his excuse was, "I didn't know." Okay, have you ever run into people who made a mess of their life and they go, "I didn't know." Okay, let's not be those type of people. Let's get the facts. So let's pick up from there, get some facts about scriptures as we go along this morning. Thank you.